0: He was born and raised in Brooklyn and graduated from NYU with a B.A.C. in Social Work in 2016. His focus was on community organizing. He's currently a graduate student at Columbia University's Middle East Institute pursuing an M.A. in Islamic studies.
1: After I graduate my M.A., I hope to do a Ph.D. (laughs) Um, So, you know, once I finish that, one goal, I would, I, I I miss being involved on the ground. Um, right now I'm sort of cooped up in my library because I have to do that for my academic pathway, but I'm, I'm, I'm very much a people person, you know. I, I'm very much with the organization I founded, helping people, going out and giving lectures and talks.
0: is a blogger and a podcaster. Today, I will be talking to this young Brooklynite, Asad Dandia, who is reinventing the way people approach religion, especially Islam. This is Immigrantly, and I'm your host, Sadia Khan. Welcome, Asad. So good to have you on my pod.
1: Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here.
0: So you were born in Brooklyn. Before it was gentrified, how has Brooklyn changed?
1: Born and raised in a pre-gentrified Brooklyn, everything else is commentary. That's my Twitter bio. So I was born in 1992, and I spent my entire life in Brooklyn in terms of my residence. Hmm. And I've spent summers elsewhere, but for my for most of my my long term residence, it has been in, in Brooklyn with my family. My parents immigrated to New York in the mid '80s from Pakistan. Where are in Pakistan? Karachi.
0: Oh, nice.
1: Yeah. My my father immigrated in 1982, went back for a few years, got married, brought my mom over in 86, and they've been here for 30-some years now. We moved to a small Pakistani neighborhood. It wasn't actually a Pakistani neighborhood at the time. My father was one of the first to settle there in uh, Brighton Beach, Coney Island, so the very bottom Mm -hmm. of Brooklyn. That's actually where I'm coming from right now. So we live right next to the beach, about an hour away. That area, you know, thank God, has has not experienced the worst of gentrification because mm. typically if someone is moving to Brooklyn from another part of the country, they wouldn't want to move somewhere that's inconvenient for commuting mm. into this city because it's very far from the city. But other neighborhoods in Brooklyn that are closer to Manhattan, closer to the train station, they've experienced a wave of gentrification over the last few years, particularly Bushwick, Dumbo, Williamsburg, etc. And uh, there's a real there's a real crisis mm-hmm. <laughs> in the community about when I say the community, I mean you know Brooklynites about you know how to be able to account for the fact that you know people moving in and out of the city is going to be a natural part of you know the human experience, but also how to you know not uh how to prevent basically a housing crisis where you know the poor families get priced out by wealthy landlords who are not really concerned with anything except profit.
0: And do you think there are certain communities that are disproportionately impacted because of this price hike? And I've heard there are a lot of, like, there is tenant harassment and there are evictions.
1: Yeah, uh, particularly the Latinx community and and the Black community, they are disproportionately targeted in in these areas because that's where the crux of of their communities are. I I actually used to work in Bushwick for, for about, when I was an undergrad for a year and a half to two years. And I could visibly see in that two-year timeline the, the process of, like you see certain shops opening up, certain restaurants, which you would never expect to see there. And these communities are often targeted in ways that are systemic. So it's not just the fact that, you know, the landlords are raising the rent. There's an entire system that sort of disproportionately ensures that certain communities are sort of pushed out or incentivized to be pushed out.
0: I've lived in New York for almost Nine years, not in New York, New York, but Westchester County, which is north of New York. And some people may think it's upstate New York, which it is not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it isn't. It isn't, it it isn't but it's right. like, it's offensive. It's not upstate New mm. York. Um, no offense to upstate New Yorkers, sorry. <laughs> um, but uh, every time we think about good restaurants, a nice cafe, uh, a bakery, it's mm. always in Brooklyn. Yeah, and it's like an hour long commute for me. But everything yeah. is in Brooklyn, so I can see gentrification mm-hmm. even. In the last like seven, eight years, um, accelerated rate of gentrification. Right. But as you pointed out, it is impacting communities there. And right. that's something that we should be mindful of and we should talk about more. So, right. talking about your family, you said your father moved from Karachi. Yeah. Growing up, what was the culture like at home? Like, you know, because you were <laughs> straddling two worlds, of Pakistani course. and American.
1: You know, my, my father, he's actually in Karachi right now. He's visiting family. He'll be back. Um, actually, this weekend he goes more often than the rest of us, and I visit every two or three years. He likes to call me an ABCD. Oh, sure we all we all call <laughs> our
0: kids ABCD. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, for our listeners, that's American-born confused Desi, which means <laughs> South Asian. It's 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 an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, at home we speak Urdu. Uh, my parents, you know, can also speak English, but they prefer speaking to me in Urdu. My my father is actually very big. On Urdu poetry and hmm. and, and liter- literature, like many South Asian parents of his generation, and oftentimes, when he's angry with me, or when he's upset at me, he starts reciting lamentation poetry in <laughs> Urdu, and that's something that's unique because here he is, you know, he's taking me to school, as they say, but it's never sounded so beautiful. You know, he's basically roasting me, you know, in our, <laughs> in our common parlance, but he makes it sound so. Like it makes you want to get roasted. So yeah, I mean, I can I can read, write, and speak quite well. The, in terms of cultural cultural gaps, there were definitely obstacles. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there obviously there were growing up. There were some things I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents about, but I could talk to my friends about, and some things that I could talk to my parents about that I couldn't talk to my friends about. You learn to sort of navigate and maneuver as you as you get older, and I think the parents become much more receptive as you get older.
0: Do you have siblings?
1: Younger sister, yeah.
0: Younger sister. And what kind of relationship do you have with her?
1: A good relationship. I mean, we had our fights just like everyone else did. Funny thing is I'm actually the one who's like more social science-y and she's actually the one who went into like computer science, but she's on the side. She probably wouldn't want me saying it, but she's writing a novel on the side um, that takes place in the region of Pakistan and Afghanistan, and it's something that I'm looking forward to reading. So you know, we're, we're a multi, multi, uh, multi-vocal multi family in terms of our interests, our talents, and our relationships.
0: Awesome. Did you have any fears growing up?
1: Fears growing up, fears about my future, fears about... I mean, in the post-9-11 world, we, you know, Islamophobia was always something that came up. But there's always a sense of uncertainty, especially when I'm the eldest. So I have just my younger sister. I'm the eldest in my family. And so there's, there's that pressure on you to really do well, and um, my sister's two years younger than me, and she's already gotten married, so now there's more pressure on me. And I've not gotten married. I'm sure you know the deal, right? Oh my so God! Yes. There's, there's there's fear, there's pressure, there's uncertainty, but you keep pushing.
0: You you're not an immigrant. We no. just want to clarify that. Yeah, born in. Uh, unfortunately, there is this definition of immigrants that's really misconstrued and one-dimensional. Anybody who's born here is not an immigrant anybody who's not born here even if you're white or brown Mm. or whatever you are an immigrant so immigrant status is not restricted to a certain religion or ethnicity or skin color yeah it's it's you know and and that's something that i always want to clarify because people will use terms like immigrant kids you're not an immigrant kid your yeah. parents are immigrants, and that's something that it's a it's a distinction that we should always make. Did people ever take you for an immigrant, and did it bother you?
1: Oh, all the time. Yeah, uh, it started from a very young age. Unfortunately, I think my first experience that I can vividly remember was probably junior high school when a when a classmate of mine, you know, he he's like, "Oh, well, you're an immigrant." I was like, "No, I was born and raised <laughs> here." And he said it as a like an insult, yeah. right? You know, sixth, seventh grade kids are very mean to each other, and so he, I was like, "No, I was born and raised here. I'm not an immigrant." And he says, and "I said, you know what? Everybody is, is it technically an immigrant at some point. Somebody, somebody can't unless you're Native American. Mm-hmm. You have had." Ancestors or family members who came here, and then he looked at me and said, "Yeah, well, my ancestors have been here for a hundred years. Yours have only been here for twenty or thirty years."
0: That does not change the definition of right. not being an immigrant or right. being an immigrant.
1: But it, it goes to show how the 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 conversation is framed, right? Where this individual he was of Irish descent, um, and so they have already assimilated into the dominant culture, um, and therefore feel that they they can claim sort of that they are the true Americans, right? Um, whereas the rest of us, we have not reached. Uh, ideally, we should it should not be something to reach. It should be something that we dismantle altogether. It just goes to show the way the conversation is framed, where some people, even though their family members came from Europe, they don't perceive themselves to be immigrants. And an immigrant is defined, according to these people, by your religion or your skin color. Skin
0: color, exactly. Um, you were part of FSNYC, right? Yes. A religious outreach group that mm. was serving low-income People, but then it dismantled. It stopped functioning in 2012. Can you talk a little bit about that and why was it dismantled?
1: So it was it was dismantled, but it was it was restarted with a different name. But in 2012, so we changed the name later on to MGB Muslims Giving Back. But in 2012, um, when the organization was still young, and I think at the time I was sophomore, or I was very in my early college years. We had a young man who joined the organization or who, who partook in our events. He was with us. He joined us in March, February, March, and then he came out in October and he confessed to being an informant for the NYPD that he was sent to basically spy on our community and our organization. And that led to a lawsuit. We, you know, We joined the ACLU and a bunch of other law firms to sue for policy changes. Essentially, and that that went on for another four or five years. But FSNYC was it was at the time it was dismantled and, and then changed to MGB.
0: How did uh, it impact you in terms of being able to trust anybody? Because mm. for me, if when I think about it, if something like that ha- had happened to me, it would be very difficult for me to trust anyone, especially people that I don't know or are strangers.
1: Mm. You know, it was it was a traumatizing time. we were very young. Um, not that we're super old now. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was—I think I was nineteen or twenty years old at the time, and yeah. At, at, after that point, I remember I used to—I used to have like an internal litmus test for every new person I met, especially at the mosque, which is supposed to be an open space and a trusting space where you're supposed to feel most at home. You know, if I met you. I would have to have like three people who can vouch for you that they know you from somewhere, from school, from work. I should be able to identify where you're from, where you live, who your family is, and that way I know. Okay, this is a, a person in the community whom who, who I can trust, um, and not like, this shady, spy who's like out to, you know, report our our us feeding the poor and further you know, enable a climate of fear. So there, there was definitely an internal litmus test that I had established at the time. I've, I've loosened up now, you know, in, in the immediate aftermath of it, it was very strict.
0: Despite all of that, you, you're very hopeful. You have yeah. a blog that I was reading and mm. you wrote in your blog that Islam is about more than just praying at the mosque and fasting. Mm. Islam is about getting involved and engaging with the greater world. Now, very few people, in the west and even in eastern societies have this this view of islam that you are presenting <laughs> why yeah. is there such a dichotomy and what do you mean by this when you say that it is just more it is more than just fasting and praying
1: that's a good question why is there such a dichotomy between you know fasting and praying and getting involved in the greater world i think you know it's no it's no fault of the religion it's people's interpretations and many of them would prefer to People in power, especially, would prefer that Islam or really any any religion just be restricted to the mosque. Because if you take it out of the mosque and you start to challenge power structures, it's a, dangerous. Nobody wants that. For a lot of us, faith is what guides us to you know toward justice and towards seeking justice. And you know, as Muslims, we look at the example of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his followers and his companions and his and his um, descendants, and we see that they didn't restrict themselves to just praying and fasting you know they were they they gave in charity they you know they set up communities they built they brought together various different tribes that were feuding and killing each other to seek reconciliation they sought justice so i like to look at you know my faith and i'll speak for myself i don't want to speak on behalf of anyone i like to look at it in a holistic way faith is faith is much more than just your 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 personal Day to day activities. It is it's how you how you interact and engage with people, in the in the everyday world.
0: Do you think Islam is violent?
1: <laughs> it's a it's a good question. No, I don't think any religion is inherently violent. But the, you, everyone, every religion, or religious community will have a, a small fringe that will interpret it in such a way.
0: So here's the thing. I I'm a practicing Muslim and I have had arguments with my close friends about awesome. Islam. But, but the problem is that I am not an expert. Mm-hmm. I am not a scholar. Sure. And I always feel that my judgment or my argument is limited right. by my limited knowledge of sure. my own religion. Mm-hmm. And skeptics would argue that when you read Quran, there are verses. And there are mm-hmm. verses that are violent in some ways. Mm-hmm. And the most Muslims believe that you should follow Quran to the T and it transcends time, and uh, whatever is in Quran is word of God, so we should just follow it as is. And because of that, every verse that we see that either oppresses women or is violent in other ways is what Islam is all about. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to them?
1: My my response is, is, is very straightforward. You know, to say that Islam is exclusively the Quran is like, saying that judaism or, or or christianity are exclusively the the letter of the law there's what i like to what i the way i like to divide it is that there's the letter of the law which is as you mentioned the, you know the quran and the the hadith corpus to the t there's also the spirit of the law right the spirit of the law refers to you know what is the objective of these texts and how does these how do these texts and the, the these these laws have an impact on our day-to-day life And through what framework do we interpret them? So there's an entire interpretive tradition, a 1,400-year tradition of various scholars from all over the world, from, from India, from Iran, from Egypt, from Morocco, from West Africa, from Indonesia. All of these scholars of the Islamic tradition have been in conversation with each other for centuries, discussing and debating a lot of these issues that that skeptics or anybody else says, oh, this is the final, final law. No, there's no final. There's there's a few core fundamentals like believing in God and believing in the Prophet and the the, the pillars of Islam. But in terms of interpreting the law, there is much flexibility. And I think this is where you know Islamophobes right and Muslim fundamentalists have in common, but because they because <laughs> they both think there's only one interpretation and it has to be exactly to the T like this or my way or the highway. Right? And everybody else is trying to seek a middle ground where they're involved in this discussion and this debate with the scholarly tradition, right? with this, with this long 1,400-year tradition. And I think it is the job of these people who are, are seeking this middle ground to resist these two extremes.
0: Is that why you decided to do master's in Islamic studies? And are, are you planning, first of all, I want to ask you this, hmm. are you planning to become a Muslim scholar? Is that the goal?
1: So, I mean, if you define scholar as someone who's trained in a traditional seminary, Mm. I don't have sufficient training in seminary. Like we say in in Urdu, we call it a madrasa, Mm. or in Arabic, we say jam'a. I have uh, informal training with some local scholars here. But if by scholar, you mean academic trained in in university settings, that is a goal of mine as of right now. And I'm, I'm hoping to pursue it, you know, to the best that I can. I I definitely have the I'm applying to PhD programs as we speak, and yes, to answer your question more directly, yes, that is why I pursued this this degree. What did
0: your parents think about that? Because I'm just going to sound (laughs) extremely stereotypical right now. I'm from Pakistan and uh, I have kids and I'm always thinking about what profession they'll eventually choose and how marketable the profession is. Mm. I don't think this is marketable or
1: lucrative. So were
0: your parents like, why aren't you doing engineering or medicine?
1: So initially, my, my, my parents fit that stereotypical mold until I was able to convince them otherwise. I was lucky enough that I had a a strong network and a strong community here in New York. And I think, you know, that's one thing that I take for granted that a lot of people don't have. So when you're from here and you have access to these institutions, I was able to find work in the field already. I'm not even done with my master's. So I'm actually a teaching assistant at NYU for two courses. Wow. I also co-host a podcast of my own. It's an academic podcast where I interview scholars who are publishing books in in the field it's called new books in middle east studies and new books in islamic studies i think by convincing my parents that i am actually pursuing something tangible i think they were able to recognize that hey you know maybe he takes things maybe there's something here he takes it seriously and there's something here for him to pursue and aside from that i've i'm doing my best to go above and beyond so this past summer i was in egypt studying you know arabic intensively Summer 2018, I studied Persian or Farsi intensively. Summer 2017, I studied Hebrew and I already speak Urdu. And so like studying these languages gives me access to a lot of books and literature and traditions.
0: How does Hebrew play into all of this?
1: Well, Hebrew is a language of the Middle East, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's a language of another religion, another significant religion that grew out of that region. And so for me, I like to have a comparative perspective. You know, I want to look at how others have interpreted their religious tradition. You know what are the similarities between the way Jews practice their law versus how Muslims practice their law? What are some lessons that we can take from each other?
0: I said, do you believe in Reformation? Because when we talk about, as you mentioned, uh, Judaism, mm. now there is reformed version of it. There's mm. Reformation, and then. For Islam, there there are many people who think that it's time for Reformation. Mm. I don't believe in that. I, no. I really don't. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a... but again, that's something because you you just mentioned sure. that you're you're trying to learn from other religions and how how their religions have evolved over time, mm. pre-modern versus modern times. Do you believe in that? And if not, why not?
1: I think the to, even to use that word, it's a very European centric framework. And that's not to say that Islam and Europe and Islam in the United States and Islam in the West, which is also a framework I agree with, that that the two are incompatible. I think they're perfectly compatible. But I think to use the word reform or reformation suggests that, you know, Christianity went in one direction, Judaism may or may not have went in that direction, Islam automatically has to go in that direction too mm-hmm. because these religions did it this way. And I think that ignores the the internal qualities of, of islam that allow it to adjust itself to the times just like any other religion
0: it has to be organic
1: right number one it has to be organic number two islam already has the mechanisms for reform within it it doesn't need external reforms and people usually when they say reform they they mean it in the context of like very repressive laws mm-hmm. in you know muslim countries about minorities about women and i to that i would respond well you have to look at the last two hundred years of colonialism. why do these laws exist in these places? Let's
0: talk about that. Let's talk about women and women's oppression. Do you think Muslim woman is more oppressed than a Western woman, and if she is, should we blame religion for that?
1: The way I would frame it is that the 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 treatment of women in in sort of Europe and the United States is connected to. The repressive systems in, you know, these post-colonial states, right? The the, the same people who, who went into these these countries in, in in Asia and in the Middle East, they also are in, you know, they they were from the from Europe, hmm. right? And to give you give you you know some concrete examples. Well, number one, wait before I before I go to the example, patriarchy. I just want to emphasize patriarchy is universal, right? Yeah. Patriarchy is something that manifests, both in 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 you know the East, quote-unquote, and, and the West, quote-unquote. So the, the systems are interconnected, right? A lot of the laws that exist in these Muslim-majorities countries that are excluding women or repressing women, whatever you want to say it, they are a vestige of colonialism. So to move towards a concrete example, let's look at Iraq. I recently read a book that early on the education system in Iraq, and I'm talking about in the early 1900s, was both men and women were to receive the same education. However, at a certain point in history, there was an American committee right, that was sent to advise Iraqis on their education system, and the committee proposed that women receive a special education with regards to home-rearing, like taking care mm-hmm. of the home. This was an American advisory committee in Iraq, right? and so that was implemented in Iraq. 30, 40 years later... You know, America made progress, right, on these issues, whereas the, the sort of system that they left place in the Iraqi education system remained.
0: It makes so much sense, and it is so important to understand those connections and those nuances. But even within the Muslim societies, we don't see those conversations happening. Yeah. Everything is just boxed in this one dimensional, religious identity factor where everything is tied to religion itself. Even our clerics, like mullahs, they they do the same, right? So how do we break away from that? Like, do we need scholars like you to talk more about it? Do we need to encourage our kids to learn more about religion as an academic exercise than just practicing it the way people have been practicing so far?
1: I think religion as an academic exercise has helped me enormously, mm. just to share my own experience in terms of navigating these issues, because it allows me to see, well, which laws are sort of contingent parts of, like, which were, which laws were inserted at a certain point in history and which laws has have always existed throughout time, right? And so that allows me to say, well, you know, that, no, probably not. That, for example, you know, a lot of South Asians, you know, we're both South Asian, went Shortly after the the, Mughal, uh, the uprising in 1857, right, the synthetic toothbrush hmm. was introduced to South Asia. And a prominent South Asian scholar named Muhammad Shafi said it was haram because the Prophet used the, the miswak, which is a, 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 you know, a small little, sort of like a stick, right? But here's the thing. The historical background of that, of that was that they just came out of the uprising of 1857, and there were rumors as we all know, that the, the British put uh, pork and beef mm-hmm. on the, the rifle caskets, yeah. right? And so the, the clerics were traumatized by that experience. So, so they, they compl- thought
0: this may be that as well. Right.
1: And so if you know that history, you know why they issued that, that ruling, right? And so a lot of people, when they're taught religion, right, or certain rulings, they're not taught the historical context.
0: But why aren't people retracting? Why aren't they saying that was this was the context? Why aren't things being contextualized even by Muslims? That's what really bothers me. Like from whether you're wearing nail polish or not, yeah. whether you're praying five times, and if you're yeah. not, it's like there's so many things that have been deemed blasphemous. Yeah, it's um, a big
1: word in, especially yeah, in, Pakistan, in yeah in
0: Pakistan, right? Yeah. So it's like what we are presenting as a society runs counter mm-hmm. to there, there is a dissonance between what we really believe or we claim to believe and Absolutely. what we are practicing as our religion. So there is some responsibility to be had and say, mm-hmm. look, these practices need to stop. And if we do that, we
1: shouldn't be called blasphemous. It goes back to what I was saying in the earlier part of the conversation is that uh, a lot of it goes goes back to people wanting power and control. And you can't, they can't have people speaking up against them because then they will lose whatever sense of authority they have. And I think at that point, we need to, you know, we need to put our foot down and say, hey, no, there needs to be a democratic conversation about this. You know, we're not here. to, We're not here as European colonizers to try to, quote unquote, reform. We are here as practicing Muslims who believe in the same things you believe, but who also believe that Islam is expensive. Yeah. And so at some point, you know, you, you know, the question you ask is like, why don't the, you know, why isn't, aren't these conversations being had is because, you know, we need to be. We need to put our foot down and say, let's we need to have these conversations. It needs to start somewhere. Here's where I think being in the West helps. Because we have intellectual freedoms here that we yeah. may not have in Pakistan. And I think that's one of the benefits of being here. Even though, for example, the blasphemy law in Pakistan has, you know, goes back to British roots. It does, yeah. And that's something else we need to, you know, discuss. But, you know, at least the very fact that right now, as a matter of as a matter of fact, we have intellectual freedoms which I think we ought to take advantage of.
0: And we have terrible PR.
1: Muslims yes. have terrible PR. <laughs> we need to PR. work on our PR. I think
0: ours is worse than, I don't know, Kanye West. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I can, like, if Islam were a, an individual, who comes to your mind?
1: Oh, sh- thank God it is not one individual. That's what I would say. <laughs> um, you know, every In time, terms of bad PR? I would say, if you're a celebrity, I would say like maybe like, Someone who who's, misunderstood, right? Right, like maybe Lindsay Lohan, um, but often gets <laughs> caught up in a lot of trouble and is, you know, misunderstood. You can you can say, you know, I'm not I'm not very pop culture savvy, so I can't go further than that. But I I like I, I get, like you said, misunderstood, and can can have some can do some work on the inside. And here's the issue: is like we are fighting battles on the inside, but at the yeah. same time we have to resist. Like I always say this in my my philosophy towards the Muslim community is I will vigorously defend it from the outside, right? If someone is Islamophobe and anti-Muslim bigot, I will vigorously defend Muslims from the outside. But I will ruthlessly criticize it from the inside. Yeah. You know, philosophy. when we're sitting in a room together and we have a Molana here and, you know, a progressive here and I have, you know, someone else over here, I'm going to, you know, let's talk, let's, let's, let's debate.
0: Before we move to another topic that I want to discuss with you, I want to talk about the term Islamophobia itself. Sure. I don't like the term, and here's why. Because to me, Islamophobia means fear of, mm. right? And when you have fear of something, this, this whole emotion or sentiment of fear gives you leeway with a lot of things. You can get away with a lot. Mm. I would rather say we should either coin a new term or we should say like anti-islam anti-muslim rather sure. than islamophobia and, and it same goes for homophobia right. i think these terms are outdated and we need to recognize what we are implying because words matter right do you do right. you think that's like i feel that way
1: that's a very good and very fair criticism is a is a, a rigorous scholarly debate right should we call it islamophobia should we call it anti-muslim bigotry I have no strong preference for, for either term. I think whatever conveys the message most accurately and best, and I think you 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 know, you make a great point about, you know, the onus should not be on the victim, right? The victim should not be made responsible for the oppressor's oppression. Yeah. Right? No no Muslim should be held responsible, right? No LGBT person should be held responsible for someone else's homophobia. Um, as they say, it's not our job to sort of, you know explain things to them so they don't hate us. No, it's your job not to hate. And so I agree. I mean, I have no no issues with what you say. I think we can we can be better and more precise with our terminology. I think the other one that's prominent is anti-muslim bigotry. Um mm. that's one that you see often. You know, again, that that also may have some issues because why anti-muslim, why not anti-islam because a lot of these people hate islam and muslims. So th- this is this is an ongoing conversation.
0: I want to pivot a little and sure. talk about politics. First, we talked about religion, now politics. Interesting topics, right? (laughs) Uh, So I was browsing your Twitter account, and I saw something that really caught my attention, and I'm glad you tweeted about it. Mm. So you weren't really happy about Ilhan Umar's response Mm. to uh, recognizing uh, Armenian genocide, right? Genocide happened around 1915. Mm. 1.5 million Armenians were killed. And she did not vote to recognize it. And you wrote something, which is, I hate to air this dirty laundry again, but <laughs> American Muslims, including and especially our leaders and institutions, need to re-examine their politics when it comes to Turkey critically. This is not just wrong on principle. It also undermines your moral credibility in other areas. Mm. What bothered you about her response and why?
1: Well, what bothered me most about Ilhan Omar's response is that she has consistently been on the side of the oppressed, um, you know, on the side of justice. Yes, she has had her slip-ups, but she's she's new and she's young and there's a lot of pressure on her. Um, and so, you know, those slip-ups are able to be excused. This is hard to excuse because if you read her statement, you know, she mentioned that there should be in more academic discussion on it and that we should account for other crimes against humanity or whatever the term that she used. Number one, there's academic consensus that this was a genocide. And number two, I don't think we have to turn this into an issue of what about XYZ, what about XYZ? Because, you know, what has happened to the Armenians, you know, in the last 100 years, at least 100 plus years, is something that, you know, is reprehensible and it, it, it ought to be recognized. And if we're claiming to be on the side of justice, if we're claiming to be on the side of truth, then we have to speak up against it, even if it means speaking up against our, our own, quote-unquote, right? You know, Turkey is a Muslim-majority country. You know, the Ottoman Empire was the last Muslim sort of caliphate, the last Muslim empire. You know, a lot of Muslims have nostalgia about that. I don't know why.
0: Why, why do you think we shouldn't? And I agree with all you're saying, but you know, I just want to understand what's the thought process behind when you said, I don't know why.
1: I think there's a lot of romantic narratives about that I mean, obviously the Ottomans ruled for 500 years, and I'm, I'm not a scholar of Ottoman history, and it's very nuanced and very complicated, but I think when you've lost something, when you feel like you've lost something, you tend to romanticize it, that thing, right? Um, and I think a lot of Muslims, especially Sunni Muslims, I myself come from that community. Um, we tend to have this romantic nostalgia because we feel like we've lost something that was very important, a core component of our, of who we were as a global community. And so when you romanticize something, you're not going to talk about the dark parts, hmm. right? And I think that's what happens when it comes to Turkey. and Broadly speaking, the politics of Turkey is that we're not looking at what, you know, the Turkish government has done to the Kurds or is doing to the Kurds, the Kurdish people, who, by the way, are also Muslim, Muslims, yeah. Right, majority Muslim, right? And Armenians, too, you know, Turks. I, I also think and... You know, I can be corrected on this. I don't think Pakistan recognizes Armenia as a country. I uh, don't know. That. From what yeah, I I'll from what I've it. heard, um, and it is in solidarity with Turkey on the issue. I remember when the when the Turkey did its incursion on the the, the Kurdish territory. There are two countries in the world that were had a positive reception to it. One was Qatar. Uh, and the other was Pakistan.
0: Why do we do that, by <laughs> the way? I think Pakistan does that with other countries as well. I think probably with Israel. I don't know. It's it, like it gets annoying after some time. Yeah. It's like stop doing that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> um, yeah. I think you know, with, with, with you know Pakistan, it, it's it's the it's the pan pan Islamic narrative mm. that the country is founded upon and still has to uphold because i feel like
0: uh, and i was having this discussion with a friend and she said we call it Islamic Republic of Pakistan right. then it, that inherently makes it more difficult to break away from that identity
1: yeah i think the identity it has harmed the country hmm. because number one whose islam are we talking about right typically it's the islam of a you know conservative sunni diobandi cleric which is exactly. not the islam of everyone right it's not the islam that everyone wants to wants to adhere to And I think number two, it also makes it leads Pakistani Muslims to turn away from you know eight thousand years of their history. Pakistan is also you know encompasses the region where Sikhism was founded as a religion, right? There was a prominent Buddhist, prominent Hindu, prominent Zoroastrian, prominent Christian um, communities that have lived in that part of the world for centuries and millennia, and and
0: we don't celebrate that.
1: Yeah, right. And I think. It, it it is almost created in a, uh, like a Muslim supremacy, a Sunni Muslim supremacy, um, and I think that's harmful. I think aside from harming others, that, that harms the country. You know, it's not just you're harming other people; you're harming yourself. And you're not ma- you're not going to make any progress in that way.
0: I ask my guests this question always: sure. If you were to describe America in a word or a sentence, how would you describe it?
1: I would say contradictory, is mm. a word maybe. It's a land of contradictions. You know. And I think I Give think me that an example this is uh you know a country that that boasts being founded upon ideals rather than by blood right we're we are, We are a country founded upon ideals, and yet those ideals have been denied to substantial population for a very long time and continue to be denied in different ways you know African Americans, people who were bought, brought here as slaves um immigrants right I think uh, another way to describe it is a country that is constantly in progress, mm. constantly trying to embody the ideals which it has always proclaimed to be following. And the people who, who are most ardent about seeing America embody those ideals are minorities. They're the ones who want America to most embody the ideals of freedom, the ideals of equality, the ideals of justice, right? Typically black Americans, but also others following mm. in their footsteps, And so America is something that is, it's an idea. I would say that. I would say America is not a, America is not just a physical space. It is an idea. And it is an idea that is constantly at work.
0: What is one goal that you really look forward to or aspire to achieve?
1: After I graduate my MA, I hope to do a PhD. (laughs) Um, So, you know, once I finish that, one goal I would, I, I, I miss being involved on the ground. Um right now I'm sort of cooped up in my library because I have to do that for my academic pathway, but i'm 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 very much a people person, you know. I, I'm very much with the organization I founded, helping people going out and giving lectures and talks. One goal I hope to accomplish, it's hard to put that in one concrete, you know one concrete objective. But I would say if I can have an impact on my community, the Muslim American community, in a positive way, I would say I have done something worth, you know, my life.
0: I said, where can people find your podcast? And you have a great blog. Where can they find that?
1: You can go to my personal website, which is just my name. That is A-S-A-D d a n d i a dot com There's also a contact section where you can get in touch with me. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is again just my 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 handle is reverse. so it's my last name and my first name. So it's at d a n d i a a s a d asad You know I'm I go to school at Columbia. I work I work at NYU. So you'll find me between these two these two areas most of the time. If you want to get in touch, grab coffee, um, and you can find all the information on these two places.
0: Thank you so much. This was wonderful. And I learned a lot today.
1: And I hope (laughs) others did too. Pleasure to be on here with you today.
0: And thank you to everyone for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at Chronicles Alien or on Instagram at The Alien Chronicles. And come next time when we have another inspiring story. And in the meantime, stay connected.